This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso. A federal appeals court ordered Judge Emmett Sullivan to immediately dismiss the criminal case against President Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who twice pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. The panel divided along party lines with Trump appointee Naomi Rao joining with George H.W. Bush appointee Karen Henderson in the majority and Obama appointee Robert Wilkins dissenting. The Justice Department had made a surprise motion to dismiss the case against Flynn before his sentencing, but the divided three-judge panel decided that Judge Sullivan did not have the authority to decide on his own whether to grant that government motion. Joining me is National Security Attorney Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark's Aid. This was a surprise to many because you had Flynn requesting an extraordinary remedy, and during oral arguments... The judges appeared skeptical of granting that. Yeah, well, this is the reminder that so many of us always say when people start live tweeting oral arguments and start making conclusions about how judges will rule based on them. Never, ever read too much into oral arguments because you never know whether or not the judges are simply road testing some ideas for themselves or just putting you through the motions or if they actually are in agreement with the particular line of question they're bringing against you. And this was very much that case. You listen to oral arguments, you would have thought it was going to be three zip denying the writ of mandamus, but instead it was two one in favor of granting it, which certainly caught some people by surprise this morning. This was a somewhat controversial ruling to say the least. There's certainly, you know, some weakness in the citations provided by the majority opinion to back up some of their arguments as a point where they're literally just pointing to a legal treatise and no case law as justification for the premise that if there's any standard for seeking relief or any precedent for it where there's already been a guilty plea and the judge hasn't even ruled on anything yet. So it's likely, although not guaranteed, that this will go before the full D.C. Circuit. Any of the current judges on the circuit can ask for an en banc hearing and then it goes before a vote. At least six judges have to vote in favor of it for it to have that full circuit hearing. If they do so, they'll likely vacate this 2-1 opinion. But there's no guarantees on that, and there's no guarantees on how the full circuit might do It's entirely possible the full circuit might agree with this opinion by Judge Rao. So we're just going to have to wait and see. But needless to say, this was a bit of a surprise today. So in the majority opinion, Judge Naomi Rao said, this is not the unusual case where a more searching inquiry is justified. But this case has been anything but usual. Yes. Yeah, so the the premise essentially of her um, analysis was that for there to be a basis for this relief to for there to be a basis to rebut the presumption of regularity that is accorded to uh, the submissions made by the Justice Department in support of Flynn, uh, the charges being dropped. There'd need to be something extraordinary, something similar to what they've seen in the past when they've been willing to um, reject this idea and to find that allowing a judge to inquire prior to granting the Rule 48 motion would be warranted. And the reason they that Judge Rouse said it was not warranted here was given the agreement between the parties to drop it in the sense that Justice Department agreed that they should drop the charges against Mr. Flynn, which is something the Justice Department does do, to be fair, from time to time, is decide to pull back cases they brought. It was in light of submissions, again, made by the Justice Department, which the court gave a presumption of regularity. 
And it was the fact that the only cases in the past where they've ever really authorized this kind of judicial inquiry was where they were concerned about prosecutorial harassment. And there was a dispute. And there was, the parties were still in disagreement over how to proceed. Essentially, Judge Rao's assessment here is the courts should not take over the role of prosecutor in any way or start second-guessing the executive branch's authority to conduct or withdraw prosecutions because it would usurp that you know, balance of power between the separate branches. Did it seem that there was a concern on Rao's part with what might happen at future hearings by Judge Sullivan, that Judge Sullivan would be inquiring as to the process that the Justice Department went through in coming to this decision to drop the charges? Correct. Yeah. So what she didn't want and what obviously would have happened if the proceedings, if Judge Sullivan ultimately refused to grant the motion, was that there would have been a peeling back of some of the inner workings of how the Justice Department came to this conclusion, whether, you know, what the internal discussions were beyond what's already been submitted into the record. We know what the Justice Department gave. The Justice Department did not withdraw any of their prior affidavits concluding that all Brady disclosures were complied with and things along those lines, denying that there was misconduct. What the government submitted was an explanation that the original premise for the inquiry was no longer justified or valid when the interviews with Michael Flynn occurred. And that because of that, they were withdrawing it, not based off misconduct, not based off of Brady violations and all the things that the Flynn team had argued but merely that the investigation, the inquiry should never have occurred in the first place, a very limited and narrow legal technicality. And that's the analysis beyond that. That's what Judge Rao was concerned about Judge Sullivan digging into, is that it would become too much of an inquiry into the inner workings of the Justice Department and that it was unwarranted given the circumstances. In dissent was Obama appointee Judge Robert Wilkins, and he said that the majority had ironically exceeded their own authority while accusing Sullivan of overstepping his. Is he right? Well, it depends on how you tend to view some of this case law and some of the existing precedents. So there was an existing precedent uh, in the circuit that the Flint team was relying upon. It's this Fokker case that, ser- that served as kind of a uh, baseline for saying that there's limits to what judges are really allowed to do in this context where there was an effort by the, by the Justice Department to withdraw charges it originally had brought. And you know, the argument by the Flynn team was that precedent rules here and therefore you should grant the mandamus because judges aren't supposed to be going into this anyways based off that precedent. What Wilkins' concern was and what the concern of several individuals such as myself is, is that that ruling from the previous case, from the Fokker case, didn't have a similar set of circumstances sufficient to warrant applying it here. Because here, the guilty pleas had already been entered into. There had already been motions to vacate, motions to throw out the charges that had been denied by the judge. And then all of a sudden, DOJ decided to drop charges at the last minute. It was a different set of circumstances. So what Wilkins was concerned about was that by providing this extraordinary relief of mandamus, the circuit was, as he said, usurping its authority by intervening before the judge had even done anything. Because Judge Sullivan hasn't denied the motion to dismiss the charges. He just asked for additional information. And that is Wilkins' concern. And it's entirely possible Judge Sullivan would have granted the dismissal of the charges. But this is, a, this is getting into the nuances and the very granular level of detail 
of legal technicalities that Judge Wilkins was concerned about. And if this goes before the full circuit, I think you're going to see a lot of discussion on that. So Judge Sullivan has the right to appeal this to the full circuit? So either Judge Sullivan could seek review by the full circuit or one of the judges on the circuit, him or herself, could do it on their own. They have that authority to seek a vote by the full D.C. circuit on whether or not to rehear the case before the entire circuit. There would have to be at least six judges who would ultimately vote in favor of rehearing it for that to occur. There's certainly some time still before any appeal or any petition would have to be filed. It's way too early to know what will happen here. I don't know if Judge Sullivan will want to even bother with it or if he'll leave it to one of the other judges on the circuit to decide if they want to rehear it. But certainly for the Flynn team, they've got to be happy today. And the last time one of Judge Rao's opinions went to the full circuit, she was overruled. Yes. And I mean, Judge Rao has a very strict originalist and conservative viewpoint on the law. That was why she got the appointment she did. That's what the Republican Party was trying to push in terms of how case law was applied and how both the Constitution and the existing statutes were applied. Whether or not this analysis she has here in this opinion, which I view as not the most strong legal argument, but certainly something that could survive, whether or not that would survive a rehearing before the full circuit, I'm not going to claim that I have that clairvoyant and that ability to see in the future to determine it. I would certainly put my money against her on a rehearing, but anything's possible. So what this means is that if a defendant lies to a court or if a defendant commits perjury and the Justice Department doesn't care about it and decides to drop the charges, there's nothing that the judge can do to protect the integrity of his or her court. Correct. According to this precedent and according to this uh, grant of mandamus, that the judge has no authority to inquire further under these particular kinds of circumstances. The judge, despite the fact that Rule 48, which was the basis for seeking dismissal of the charges, despite the fact that Rule 48 requires leave of the court, requires the court to sign off on it, and despite the fact that that rule was crafted for the very purpose of avoiding you know, political cronyism in how prosecutions were brought, it is the view of Judge Rao and her assessment that the judges should not be getting into that in this kind of situation, absent some evidence of prosecutorial harassment. It's unusual timing because today the House is holding a hearing on the very question that Judge Sullivan was going to inquire into, the politicization of the Justice Department. Correct. Oh, it's irony abounds today. Yeah, there's a hearing right today before the House uh, on the Stone case. The prosecutor Zelensky is going to testify about politicization of the process and how the sentencing recommendations were messed with and whether or not there were efforts to corrupt it on behalf of the president's allies, in that case, Roger Stone. Bill Barr is coming under a lot of criticism in the past month for several things that he's done. The Judiciary Committee wants him to testify. He has yet to testify before the Judiciary Committee. Can they do anything if he says, no, I'm not going to testify? Under the existing standard that was litigated with respect to Don McGahn, the answer is no. Don McGahn refused to testify in the impeachment inquiries. There was a lawsuit brought to compel his testimony. There was a favorable ruling. I think it was House Judiciary Committee brought the lawsuit 
to compel his testimony, but they lost the D.C. Circuit in a 2-1 ruling. That ruling is on appeal right now before the full circuit. The uh, 2-1 ruling was vacated, but technically that standard still survives at the moment. So if the House brought a lawsuit to compel Bill Barr's testimony at the moment, it's anyone's guess what the actual legal standard would be on if they even have the standing to compel that testimony. Have there been other U.S. attorneys who dominated the department to such an extent? You know, there certainly have been, you know, powerful U.S. attorney generals. Janet Reno was certainly one. Uh, Eric Holder was no shrinking violet. You know, you think back to Nixon, you think of John Mitchell. But Bill Barr, and part of this is the, the current era of, of 24-7 social media, which overtook 24-7 cable television to even get more infected with people every waking moment. That's kind of given Bill Barr a bit of a greater aura here than we would have ordinarily given him. But there is something to be said about concern of how he has intervened to undo past actions by the Justice Department in a way that seems to be overly favoring the president and the president's friends and allies more than necessarily the administration of justice. That's why there's been resignations. That's why there's people testifying today before the House on politicization at the DOJ. That's why people at George Washington, the Attorney General's alma mater, have denounced him. That's why the New York Bar Association has written scathing public remarks on his actions. Do I think Bill Barr cares? No. Because Bill Barr has his view of the world. He has his view of how the law should be applied if he's going to continue to pursue it so long as he has that authority. That's Bradley Moss of Mark Zaid. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals gave a win to President Trump on immigration just days after the Supreme Court derailed his effort to lift Obama-era protections for nearly 700,000 undocumented immigrants known as Dreamers. The court ruled that the administration can use fast-track deportation proceedings for undocumented immigrants found anywhere in the United States who've been in the country for less than two years. It's a major setback for states that backed a lawsuit trying to block the plan. Joining me is Alora Mukherjee, director of Columbia Law School's Immigrants' Rights Clinic. First of all, explain what this ruling does. The ruling from yesterday expands and authorizes the use of a provision of law called expedited removal across the country. Congress first authorized the use of expedited removal with the passage of the law in 1996. But expedited removal has not been used to its fullest extent until last July when then Acting Secretary of DHS Kevin McAleenan said, we are going to authorize the use of expedited removal nationwide. And what this means in practice, now that the court has authorized it, is that in a few months, it may be possible for immigration authorities nationwide to apprehend those who are undocumented or those who are perceived to be in the United States for less than two years and quickly remove them from the country. Expedited removal lives up to its name, and those who are apprehended and put into expedited removal proceedings are removed from the United States in about 11 and a half days from the time of apprehension, the time that they're put into the program. For the people who are caught up in the program, they have no access to an immigration judge. They have no access to any federal court or state court judge to whom they may plead their case. 
their case is entirely decided, their deportation is entirely decided by a line immigration officer whose work is only reviewed on paper by a supervisor. So there is an extremely high risk of erroneous deportation for people who may get caught up in the system. And it's really, really hard to come back into the United States if a person has been erroneously deported. Why did the court say it was all right for the Trump administration to expand this? So the lower court, the district court, held that the expansion of expedited removal was not properly done by the administration. The lower court held that the administration had failed to follow federal administrative procedure law, which requires a notice and comment period prior to the enaction, prior to enacting this type of wide sweeping policy and review. But what two judges on the D.C. Circuit Court held is that federal law commits, quote, sole and unreviewable discretion to the Secretary of Homeland Security about whether to subject individuals to this expedited removal procedure. So what the D.C. Circuit Court judges held is there was no need for the administration to follow federal administrative law in enacting this policy since Congress had already authorized it back in 1996. And what is also important to note, though, is that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals only ruled on two issues, whether the courts have jurisdiction to consider the case, meaning do they have authority to hear the case, and second, whether the administration's new policy on expedited removal comports with federal administrative law. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals did not rule on the plaintiff's statutory claims, meaning whether it violates immigration statutes, and it also did not rule on the plaintiff's constitutional claims, meaning whether it violated the U.S. Constitution. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals sent the case back to the federal district court for consideration of those claims. So then how big a setback Is this then? I think we will see. Right now it is unclear. So the decision does not go into effect immediately. It will be stayed, meaning it'll be on pause until at the earliest, August 14th, at which point the district court and the parties will need to decide how to proceed with the case. In terms of an immigrant's rights advocate, which I am, I am really worried about the decision because it is possible that it will take effect after August 14th and will allow immigration officers around the country to target those who they perceive to be in the United States for less than two years, apprehend them, put them in immigration detention centers, and then subject them to removal on an extremely fast basis. Now, that said, there is still hope. It is still possible that Um, The statutory claims to the immigration law claims and the constitutional claims will succeed in court. Have there been proven cases where immigrants were deported who were actually here legally? Yes, dozens and dozens of documented cases of immigrants, including naturalized U.S. citizens and natural-born U.S. citizens, meaning those born in the United States, who have been deported wrongly. Now, this decision opens up enormous leeway 
for immigration authorities to target those who they perceive to be in the United States for less than two years. This opens up enormous concerns about racial profiling and who will be targeted by the decision. It also compounds existing problems in immigration detention centers where coronavirus is spreading increasingly rapidly and immigration detention centers are hotbeds for the virus and for people who are caught up in the system and who are either rightly or wrongly deported, they're going to contribute to the exporting of coronavirus from the United States to the rest of the world. There's still the underlying claims that can proceed at the district court level, but it seems like a long shot to get those claims heard and decided before the Trump administration can put this into effect. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. It will be a long shot to have the statutory claims and the constitutional claims adjudicated before August 14th. The legal team for the plaintiffs is currently assessing their options and trying to figure out how to proceed next. It's worth noting that nearly two dozen states and the District of Columbia weighed in in the case in favor of the plaintiff organizations and said that this places their workers, including essential workers, at high risk of erroneous deportation, and it would have potentially devastating consequences on their economies and their communities. I want to turn to the issue of the H-1B program. First of all, explain what President Trump did with executive order. The executive order that was issued earlier this week effectively halts the processing of H-1B visas for people who are outside the United States. It does not have effects for those who are already in the United States on this visa, but the executive order in an effort purporting to protect American workers says that the program is on halt until the end of December, at which point the president will reconsider the decision. Now, this has caused enormous outrage and concern among the tech sector and other highly specialized industries. H-1B visas go to highly specialized technical workers and allow the United States to recruit the top talent around the world in science and technology and engineering. And this will unfortunately undermine the competitiveness of the United States and the global economy. Can this be challenged in court? Many of President Trump's executive orders related to immigration have been challenged in the federal court. Uh, Your listeners may remember most vividly the challenge of the executive orders related to the Muslim ban that were challenged in court starting in January of 2017 after the president issued them. It is possible that this new executive order related to H-1B visas will be challenged in court, but that litigation has not been filed yet. I'm wondering who would have standing to challenge it since it relates to people who haven't come here yet. It may be that the business organizations in the United States that rely on H-1B talent to thrive and succeed and be competitive in the global economy would have standing to challenge the executive order. So now let's turn to 
a decision that came as a surprise to many people in the country, especially the dreamers. I don't know if you have any clients who are, are dreamers. Yes, we have represented dreamers over the years in terms of helping them fill out their application to receive DACA. And then also we've helped other dreamers process their DACA renewals. And it is such a thrill and a relief that the Supreme Court upheld the program for now. You say for now. Do you think that the Trump administration will be able to do anything, you know, to issue another executive order within the time before the election? The Trump administration certainly could do so. Their court, the Supreme Court, left open the possibility for the administration to provide additional reasons supported by the evidentiary record as to why the rescission of DACA could be properly authorized. But I don't think we're going to see the administration do that. I think what we'll see from this administration looking to November is they will use the DACA decision and other promises and say, give us four more years, see what else we can do to rid our country of immigrants and continue to pursue a white nationalistic agenda. This has been a question, the question of the dreamers for so many years, and there's never been an ability of Congress, a Congress to actually pass legislation that would solve the question of the dreamers permanently. What kind of hope do you hold out that that day will ever come? I'm hopeful that in the near future, we will have comprehensive immigration reform. Our country needs comprehensive immigration reform that is humane, that recognizes the enormous contributions that immigrants make to our economy and to our communities. And we need to recognize that many, many talented immigrants make America possible and that they need protections and safety in the United States. So I am hopeful that at some point in the near future, we will see comprehensive immigration reform. It may not be every aspect of immigration, but at least as to the dreamers, it's also time for a legislative solution right now. Do you think that the immigration movement has lost some steam you know, compared to the days when President Trump was stopping the caravans and, you know, we saw the horrible pictures of children in cages. Does it seem as if because of perhaps COVID or the fact that he's turned to other things that the steam has kind of gone out of the movement? Not at all from my perspective. The immigrant rights movement is robust and is partnering with ally causes, including the Black Lives Matter movement. And there is robust organizing, public education, litigation going on in the courts every day. You know, it may not be in the public spotlight as much as it was last summer and the summer before, for example, when both the cruelty of the administration with regard to keeping children in cages was in the spotlight. And in the summer of 2018, when family separations hit the spotlight, but the movement is robust and doing our best to fight every day. Finally, yesterday, President Trump made an appearance at his 
wall, part of his wall, and he said that illegal immigration is down 84% from this time last year. Does that statistic hold with you? I am not sure. I have not seen the data underlying that claim. This administration uh, has been reluctant to share data publicly. And in fact, more than a million immigration records have been deleted by a federal agency known as the Executive Office of Immigration Review. All that said, it is true that immigration patterns have dramatically changed since last summer. Most recently, the administration has illegally closed the southern border and is in flagrant violation of its obligations under both federal and international law with regard to the processing of asylum seekers. The United States is turning asylum seekers, including children unaccompanied by their parents, away from the southern border on a daily basis and subjecting them to illegal expulsions and deportations. Thank you for being on Bloomberg, Laura. That's Alora McCurgy, a professor at Columbia Law School and director of the law school's Immigrants' Rights Clinic. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. 